Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Hi, this is Jerry Boyer. Thank you for joining us on Meeting of Minds podcast. Uh, And today we're talking with Pastor Jeff Myers, author of a new commentary on the Epistle of James, Wisdom for Dissidents. Wisdom for Dissidents. It's part of the Through New Eyes series published by Athanasius Press. I haven't seen anything out of Athanasius Press that isn't well worth reading. Um, So uh, this, this, this is included as well as Pastor Meyer's previous commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, um, which is also quite good. Um, and as as I recall, Pastor Myers, when you, appro- maybe because you had written a commentary on Ecclesiastes, when you approached James, you kind of had Ecclesiastes on the brain. Um, and I've, I've heard earlier lectures and sermons that you've given where you're tying James very closely together with Ecclesiastes. But then, over a period of, what, a decade, you kind of rethought that, and now that would not be kind of your main interpretation of James. Is that right? Yeah, that's a good good question. Um, it wasn't quite a decade, but after I, after I did a sermon series on Ecclesiastes and then started doing some conference lectures and writing, started writing the book, I thought, well, since I'm in wisdom literature in the Old Testament, I'll go to wisdom literature in the New Testament, and that's generally considered to be James, which is not entirely inaccurate, not at all. Um, and besides, it has the magic word vapor in it in, <laughs> in chapter four. Um, and as, as you know, vapor, hebel, I think is uh, really important to understand in the book Ecclesiastes. It means, it means smoke, vapor, mist. And, and, and Solomon there is talking about the fact that we don't control our lives. Right. Well, and James says something similar there at the end of chapter four. But uh, I I thought that James was just as I've read in so many commentaries a, a, a collection of aphorisms of wise aphorisms without a lot of um, connection. It's a collection, but not all connected very well, and often often uh, even commented on as if there's no historical context for it. And so what happened was, well, one, uh, Peter Lightheart wrote uh, just a short little article in Biblical Horizons newsletter, I don't know, about 20 years ago or so. And he brought up the possibility, in fact, the likelihood that James was James, the son of Zebedee, um, one of Jesus' three mighty men, um, and not necessarily James the Just, Jesus' brother, and that the, and that the letter was written early, earlier than most commentators think. Well, that got me thinking. And then as I'm reading through James and preparing for a sermon series on it, um, I, I began to read older commentaries. And older commentaries actually f- took James's warning in James chapter 5 about, um, well, not his warning, but his description of how they're behaving, fights and battles and murdering. Uh, you murder as literal. And I'm like, oh, well, what could that be about? 
they're actually killing people. Yeah, that turns out that that word there in the Greek is pretty much only used for literal murder right. uh, in the New Testament. Um, and I thought, whoa, what's going on here? And so the more I read some of the older commentaries, some of them linked it in with what was going on in the first century. And, and sure enough, uh, working through the book of Acts at the, about the same time, noticed how prevalent uh, violence is. Yeah, there's a lot of murder in the book of Acts, yes. A lot murder, of warfare, yes. A lot of warfare, and and a lot of these uh, um, activity of zealots, when the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin, they're talking, they're trying to, they're trying to place them, they're trying to categorize them as one of these zealot movements, you know, against Rome and against the leadership of, of Israel. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then, and then the Jews are, are following Paul around later and instigating riots and trying to stone him. And then when he's finally protected by the Romans in Jerusalem, uh, they, they get a plot. They take oaths to assassinate him. The Jews do. The leader, and the leaders of the Jews agreed to do this. Mm. All that got me thinking about, okay, what's going on in James? What ties James together? Uh, why, 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 you know, talking about the rich in chapter one, chapter two, chapter five. Who are, what's, what's going on? And the answer, I think, I believe firmly, is that this is a letter written to the dispersed Christians, Acts 8, Acts 11, after the martyrdom of Stephen. They're, they're banished. They're exiled from Jerusalem. Uh, they leave everything behind, and they're being pursued by these uh, bounty hunters, as you said earlier when we were talking, by these inquisitors, these persecutors. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to respond. And, and some of the more angrier brothers, leaders in the church— um, are inciting violence through their words, right. through their rhetoric. That's chapter. That's chapter three, and they're they're mimicking their their oppressors, and they're acting like them with this demonic, uh, zealot type of 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 uh, skill and activity, in, including violence. Yeah. Um, and James is writing this letter to tell them, don't do that. That's not the way of Jesus. That's 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 demonic. It's earthly. It's from below. It's not from above. And uh, so the whole book is tied together this way as um, a as wisdom about how to deal with the situation they're in, and also encouragement that God will judge these rich, oppressive, Jerusalem elite rulers. He will judge them. So be patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be patient. I, you know, I think that there's a lot of language in James that we're just used to skimming over, you know, like battles. Why are there wars amongst you? You know, mm-hmm. you, 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 you do not commit adultery, yet you murder. Um, and uh, it's like, yeah. well, that doesn't really fit a 21st century evangelical, you know, it's like, I think you're more likely to find adultery than murder. But instead, it's like, oh, I don't commit adultery. Yeah, but you're murder. What kind of church is that? You know, uh, where no. there's no adultery, but there's plenty of, of murder. Um, and I, if I, and one of the things I find, if you read it in Greek, rather than because the translations maybe have a certain maybe pietistic bias, you see words like zelos, you know, mm-hmm. and then a, a translator might treat that as jealousy, right? right? When it's it's a it's a it's a term of art, it's important. Z- zeal, zealot. See, if they translated it 
zeal, you might say, oh, zealot, right? Or you yeah. have ambition. I think that's Arithia, something. If, yes. Uh, yes. Which yes. which is Aristotle's word for political ambition yes. and strife. So, yeah. and then you've got Moikeia and Palamas. I, I'm not getting all these right. But you got you have all these military words. Yeah. And they're a little under translated. And even to, but even to the degree they still reflect that, we underread them. And mm-hmm. so we put a 21st or 20th century evangelical context into this, which is arguments in church about what color the, the carpeting should be. Yeah, right. Rather yeah. than a Second Temple Judaism between 40 and 70 AD with escalating violence and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. And if we just listen to James and say he's really s- telling the truth, then that puts him in historical context and in cultural context. And then the, the book starts to make a whole lot more sense. Um, it does. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it does. Uh uh, and um, everybody, everybody knows that during this time period, the Jews are ratcheting up their rebelliousness, their rebellion against Rome, and many of the Jews also in rebellion against their leaders for not being uh, more antagonistic towards Rome. I mean, there's just there's just all this going around. Of course, it builds up, it escalates until you get to you know the late '60s when Rome has to come in right. and put down the rebellion. Uh, but so it, it it's not entirely uh, it's not unfathomable that Christians would be caught up in this because these are these I do believe these are early Jewish Christians driven out of Jerusalem and so they 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 haven't cleansed their minds yet of the the cultural kind of attitude the cultural baggage the Jewish cultural baggage that, that, that they've been, they've grown up with right. And I think this is one of the things. Well, the disciples had to had to be cleansed of that, right? But, but, but Peter's but, ready to fight. Peter's ready to fight for Jesus, and Jesus says, "No, right? You know, right?" To be clear, <laughs> the, it's not Jewish, is it? Right. The point that you make is the Judean elite are imitating Rome. Yeah. Right. Right. So, the, sort of, sort of the official, the high church of the temple is talking a lot about Jewishness, but it's really. It's well. It's, there's the sea beast and the land beast. This is the land beast, yeah. and it yeah. imitates the sea beast. Right um, now, it might talk a certain way to the people because you got to get widows to give up their leptons. You know, widows have to put the you know the pennies in the thing, so you need to talk that way, and you need to st- sell the special Jerusalem oil lamps. You know, uh, to be faithful, you got you need, you need to do all that stuff. But in reality, it's essentially an adjunct of Rome. Um, yeah. And the Herodian elites are basically buying off Rome. They oppress the poor, and then they use that money to pay protection money to Rome. And Rome says, "Okay, you can stay in charge of it." Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, you're, you're right. Though the Jewish elites, they spent time in Rome. The Herods, they learned Roman ways. They came and they came back, and they loved Rome in many ways. They loved and hated them. They loved Rome's power and wealth and prestige. Yes, they yes. wanted that for themselves. Uh, and they thought that the way to get it was the way Rome got it. Well, Herod Antipas was raised in Caesar's household. Yeah, exactly. If, if you ever read or watch I, Claudius, there's, wait, what's Herod doing there? You got all these Romans, and then there's this Jewish guy who's living exactly like the rest of them, and he's going to the local temples. And before he goes back to Jerusalem to be crowned king, he goes and makes sacrifices at the Roman pagan temples to ask for the favor of, you know, the Roman god. And remember, the, really, the Roman god is the wolf, right? Um, yeah. you know, that goes back to Romulus and Remus. Yeah. And, and so they're wolves. And so here, I'm going to do a little sacrifice to Roma 
so that when I go back to Jerusalem, the people won't overthrow me. It's like, why aren't you talking about Yahweh? Because the real power was Rome. Uh, Yahweh was a front for the, you know, for the for the schlubs at home. You got you have to talk that way. But they knew you know, the real God was was the God of Rome and really the God of power. Yeah, yeah. 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 Now I remember reading Robert Graves' book I Claudius so many years ago and, and being blown away that I had no clue that the Jews and the Romans Romans were so tight, especially the elites. Well, the elite, the Sadducees, yeah. right, right, the yeah. Herodians. Yes, it's, it, yeah. It's, it's well, his it's name probably. Antipas. Antipas was Caesar's best friend, mm-hmm. so he's named after a, after a Roman political figure. So there's a real there's a there's a well. What is the, John talks yeah. about it? There is a fornication going on between the Herodian elite and the Roman elite mm-hmm. on, in more than one ways. I'm sorry, it's it's, it's not. But then, then you see when Jesus is tried, and they say we have no king but Caesar. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. that's pretty much the case. It was the, um, the most truthful thing they said that day. That's right, right. Um, we have no king yeah. but Caesar, or maybe um, one man should die. One man can die for all, which was inadvertently truthful. All right, so you took James seriously. You took his words seriously. War, murder, zeal, political ambition. And then that was the paradigm shift for you. That put then that put you in historical context. Plus, Lightheart, uh, probably following Jordan. Hey, it's James the disciple. Uh, so that makes it earlier. So mm-hmm. once you grounded it historically, that was the thing that clicked for you, and 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 that kind of your commentary comes from there. Is that right? Yeah, and, t- and tying it in with the first uh, few verses of James where he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion and letting the Bible interpret the Bible and recognizing that's not a reference to the diaspora, you know, after the Babylonian exile. This is, this is about the dispersion from Jerusalem of the Christians. And the same word is used there in Acts 8 and Acts 11 to describe the banishment, the exile of the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. That, so then the Sadducean elite are kind of like Babylon then, right? Nebuchadnezzar, you know, forced that dispersion. Well, mm-hmm. who forces this dispersion? So in some sense, the Sadducean elite and the Herodians, the temple elite, they're playing the role of Babylon in that analogy. Is that right? Am I interpreting it correctly? You, that's that's an interesting perspective and seems right. I mean, we do have... Jerusalem being described as Babylon the Great in Revelation, and also Sodom. And Sodom, remember, uh, caused Lot and his family to have to flee. And so Christians are fleeing from Sodom. And Egypt, Revelation 11, uh, the great city, Jerusalem is Egypt and Sodom, Sodom and Egypt. And Jesus has to flee from from Jerusalem in Matthew chapter two, is that right? I think so. And now that now the Christians have to flee from Egypt. And and when Jesus flees, it says, "Out of Egypt I have called my son." Right? Not when he. It, it's not Jesus goes to Egypt, and then yeah. later he comes back from Egypt, and that fulfills the scripture. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The fulfillment is when he goes leaves Israel to go to Egypt. It's a reverse yeah. exodus because Jerusalem is now more Egypt than Egypt, and Herod yeah. is more Pharaoh than Pharaoh. And, and Herod, the new Pharaoh, 
tries to kill all the male children yes, in yes. Bethlehem. Yes, I mean yes. that's that's an explicit kind of connection here. You got to see that. Also, yeah. there's another contextual thing here, which is the first word in the book, um, James Jacob, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Another translational problem. We see a right. book called James, and from the from the get go. If we see a book that is, and we know that it's called James, and it's from James in the beginning, if we don't understand the context, we're going to miss something important, right? Because James right. isn't right. James, right? That's an anglicization yeah. of a Hebrew name. Yeah, it's Jacob, right? Jacob. And Jacob's twelve sons, and what Jacob goes through—the kind of uh, oppression and suffering he goes through having been exiled from his home into the land of Padanaram under Laban, his uncle, for, what was it, 21 years? I don't remember the exact number. Um, so, but Jacob learns wisdom there. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't try to kill his uncle or anything. Um, but so there's a kind of Jacob-like wisdom in the book of James to these 12 tribes, symbolically the new Israel, that's being driven out of their home. Uh, And so James is giving them uh, wise advice on how to live in exile under an oppressor. Hmm. They're dissidents. And that's that's why I think this book is, uh, has insights for us as Christians today, because we're more and more marginalized uh, and exiled culturally um, not, we don't, we're not facing anything like the kind of torture and death that these people had to experience, the forfeiture of their property, not yet anyway, um, but still a lot of wisdom about how we should respond, the right ways to respond and the wrong ways to respond. So a first century reader would not miss the Jacob reference no. nor the 12 reference that that, that, that would that would be their con- maybe it doesn't come naturally to us but it would come very right. naturally to them right hmm. yeah yeah there and there's there's connections too um so i have at the beginning of the book this possible way of structuring the book according to the 12 tribes and jacob's blessings on his 12 tribes at the end of of genesis um Steve Jeffries down in Texas has kind of come up with this. I'm not sure it works entirely, but there's some very interesting connections. I mean, one of them, if you think about it, is Jacob's sons, uh, Simeon and Levi, use the covenant to execute the yes. Shechemites. Yes. Because, of the, because they thought that the prince of Shechem had violated their daughter, when in fact it doesn't appear like it was it was some kind of rape or violent um, uh, rape at all. But anyway, the Shechemites agreed to be circumcised. Remember, mm-hmm. and Simeon and Levi went after them and killed the men uh, shortly after they were all circumcised. Well, that's that's a similar kind of motivation and tactic that apparently some of these Christians were using against their oppressors. Uh, we're going to make them pay. We're going to we're going to push back in terms of violence uh, and zealotry. Uh, and James is warning: don't do that. This is a James saying to his eldest, "Don't you know this again? Try, trying to prevent the violence." And in this case, it was fruitful. You know, it looks like so, yeah. it looks like they did prevent the violence. Yeah. Um, right. So, right. I, I'm pulling for you on being able to line up 
the book, the structure of the book with the 12 prophecies um, uh, in, uh, in Genesis. Um, I, I think that you, you're not convinced. You're just trying something out. You're saying maybe this works, maybe it doesn't. I think it's a good, good approach. So, you know, I, I, I'm, not, keep... I'm not convinced that's the way it's structured, but I'm certainly convinced that um, the name of Jacob impacts how Absolutely. you understand the book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the example of Jacob in Genesis. So um, Jacob's is a story of learning wisdom. Um, and you see this, or, or maturity. Jacob is a perfect man, you know, according to the King James Version, right? And um, Mature man. You would translate, and so would I, right? He's a mature man. Uh, yeah. Tom. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the idea being... Well, in Latin, it kind of works, perfect, like through made. In other words, if something's perfected, it doesn't mean it's without flaw. It is, it has become what it is supposed to become, right? So there's, uh, and, and the, the, the language that gets translated as perfected in James is sort of, it, sometimes it's a verb, sometimes it's a noun, but it's in and around telos, end, goal, Right, so mm-hmm. matured. Uh, I, I'm reading um, N.T. Wright's translation. He says complete, complete, right? And you say mature. I think those those both work, and that really does put it in continuity with the Jacob story, who's spending a life becoming not perfect, mm-hmm. sinless, but suffering, learning wisdom until he's done. He's mature. Now he's grown right. up. Right. The, the, this is a book that helps Christians grow grow up. Grow up. Right. Exactly. Uh, reach their end. Come to completion. And that's through trial, through testing, and also through suffering. Um, and that's what, I mean, that James begins like that, and he ends like that, is be patient under trial and, and suffer. This is the way of Christ, okay? And this is the way God matures people. Remember at the end of Jacob's life, well, no, I'm sorry, not the very end, but at the end of his oppression under Laban, he comes back into the land and expects to meet Esau, and he goes to the river Jabbok, and there he wrestles with a man, which turns out to be Yahweh, and it says that he wrestled with God and prevailed. Hmm. In fact, actually, that's God's uh, judgment of what happened. You've wrestled with God and man and have prevailed. Uh, and then he's renamed Israel, Prince of El, Prince of God. So he's become mature through his wrestling. And he, and, he, and, he, and he discovers that all through his life, beginning in the womb, he was wrestling. He was wrestling with his, with his brother. He was wrestling with his father. He was wrestling with his brother uh, later on when they grew up. He's wrestling with Laban. He's wrestling with his wives, with all, with all four of his wives. Mm. Um, and he recognizes then that I was, this is the face of God, Peniel. I've been wrestling with not just those people in my life. God has been wrestling with me. I've been wrestling with him. And now as a result of that wrestling, I have matured. Um, well, God, that's God's evaluation. You have matured and you now have the name Israel, Prince of God. Well, something similar like is going on with the early church. I think um, I think a barrier here is that there's been so much moralistic sermonizing about the life, uh, life of Jacob. Oh my you goodness! Know, like, oh, Jacob didn't trust God. Jacob's bad this way. Jacob Jacob manipulated. Jacob blah blah blah. 
Um, you know, I mean, Jacob, Jacob is con- Jacob is converted at the at the Jabbok River. It's like, oh, come on, really? You know, Jacob cheated Laban, and you know, I I, I, I think Jacob doesn't fit the story of Jacob doesn't fit our Sunday school kind of moralistic Sunday school, but it does fit sort of grown up that yeah, you suffer, and when you're under an oppressive tyrant, you have to find ways. Yeah, you don't you don't tell them everything. You don't tell an oppressive tyrant everything, and you're not required to. Right. Um, and yeah. uh, you got to sort of outmaneuver that person, you know, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's learning mm-hmm. how to grow up. So I think mm-hmm. that if if we had a if we had the Jacob story right in our head, then the James story would make more sense to us. It would. But if we have the Jacob story wrong in our head, Jacob's largely a negative example. Right then, what then we're gonna it's gonna we're gonna have hermeneutical trouble with the book of James or so the book of Jacob. That's a great point. That's a really good point because too often for evangelicals and reformed people, even all the stories in the in the Hebrew scriptures are all about justification by faith, and that's it. It's like, wait a minute, uh, there's more to it than that. Certainly, that's the case. But it's also about maturity and growth. If anyone listening to this has said, wow, this is a new interpretation. I've never heard this. You need to read Jim Jordan's book, Primeval Saints. Yes. uh, Because he goes through the life of Abraham, Jacob, um, Isaac, and Joseph. And it is a remarkable book. And it will change the way you look at these men and uh, why their story is shaped and structured the way it is. Mm. And the and you have to ignore what the Bible explicitly says about Jacob. You do, right? I mean, you have to. Yeah. And and if God and if what he's doing with Laban is illegitimate, then why is God giving him a vision? Right? Like he does this maneuver with Jacob with the stripes and the and it's like, oh, huh, yeah. that's manipulative. And then you find out in the next chapter that was God's idea. Yeah. <laughs> right. Of course, if we if you know if we grow up in America in the middle twentieth century, we're not dealing with tyrants. We don't have a sense of what you have to do to deal with tyranny. Now, maybe we're getting more of a sense of it now when it's bake the cake or else, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, where there's more coercion. But all right, so yep. uh, so um, you, this is a book about maturation, and this is a book about getting the church ready to what? What are Christians getting be, be matured to do? If, if the idea is they're maturing, they're reaching some telos, they're getting ready to do something, what is the something they're being gotten ready for? Good question. So in chapter one, uh, James describes this early church as the church of the first fruits. Um, and the first fruits, remember, in the Feast of Israel, uh, that's, the, that's when you bring the first of the harvest, which is a guarantee of a later harvest uh, and what's going to come. So, what happens here is that this first fruits church is the down payment on a greater harvest. And it's a harvest of righteousness, chapter, end of chapter three, harvest of righteousness. That just doesn't refer only to like individual piety or obedience. That refers to a, a cultural, a social, a larger kind of experience of, of things being made right righteousness. Um, And so he's preparing them to be the influence that will change the world. Hmm. Of course, you know, Jesus died, rose again, ascended in heaven, and the world changed in him uh, in seed form. 
and then and then he's going to change the world through his church and the whole old world's gone i mean it, re- it is effectively definitively gone when jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven but it takes 40 years for it to pass away um you still have the temple you still have you know food laws sacrifices and all that well that's all going to pass away. Jesus said that he was going to destroy the temple, and with it goes all of the old rituals, all of the old ways of organizing humanity, Jew, Gentile, food laws, all that. It's all going to go away. In fact, the whole thing's going to, all the paganism is going to go away, centralized temples. Um, and well, what's going to take the place of that is the the early church the early christians this community the kingdom of, and, which is the kingdom of god on earth which is the kingdom of god and it's going their influence is going to spread and if they're getting it wrong right up front then the whole thing is jeopardized the whole project is in danger hmm. so he says look it's not the anger of man does not produce the the righteousness of god in other words the anger of Man does not make things right as God has promised to make things right. Okay, there's there's other ways of making things right, and you know this already because I'm going to quote to you from, well, quote and allude constantly to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. This is this is about the gospel of the kingdom, and so here it is. Here it is, readers. Stop this uh, this violent political machinations. Stop it. That's you're just mimicking uh your Jewish elite oppressors, and that's not going to bring in who are mimicking the world. Right. No. Yeah. Um, I, that's meet meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's exactly what Jesus doesn't want. So there's there's language here, there's kingdom language, there's roy there's the royal law. Whoever stoops and looks into the royal law of liberty, the perfect law. So perfect here being mature, the telos, right? The perfect. So this royal language is the world has a king, right? And you have to live like him. And that is a political order. It's a political and a sociological and an economic order. That's what, that's where this is going. Yeah. Um, Not just personal salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, well, Jerusalem's in charge. Yeah. God's going to destroy Jerusalem. They're not, put them out of your mind. They're not on your agenda. Go and build the new thing so that it's there when Jerusalem is destroyed. Yes, yes. Yeah, so the kingdom under Jesus' lordship is God's new way of organizing humanity, all of humanity, civil, familial, social. It's God's new way, and that is a way of righteousness, of justice, of peace. Um, And if you guys don't get this right, you're, you're, we're not going to have that kind of kingdom. We're not going to have that kind of new order. Uh, we're going to have the same as what you've been experiencing under the elite leadership in Jerusalem. And that's that's not good. That's not the way. Be patient. Wait for, wait for God to bring judgment. He will. Okay. Chapter five is all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to bring judgment, but don't don't mimic your oppressors with violent activity um, in order to stop things or to pay them back. Okay, so let me get you in trouble. Um, Right now, as we're talking, 
that um, where uh, we've just come off of hearings in Congress about January 6th, right, um, right. which was a violent incident. Um, also, another thing going on is pro-abortion zealots, I choose mm-hmm. the word um, mm-hmm. intentionally, are uh, firebombing pro-life clinics. They are. Um, right. Last year, and it, it, this isn't go- – last year we had Antifa and the year before Antifa riots, mm-hmm. you know, riots against systemic racism and tearing down Confederate – Statues, but not just tearing down Confederate statues, burning down cities. People die. Uh, just a couple of months ago, we had a kind of a right-wing nationalist go and, you know, shoot up an up in upstate New York, a kind of in response to the Antifa violence, right? So we've got, you see, I'm trying to be balanced here. So you had Antifa riots, and then you had Kyle Rittenhouse. He goes downtown, and then, you know, he ends up killing people. And there's a lot of violence going on, right. all right? Um, and uh, I, I personally, I'm skeptical about the January 6th hearings, not because I don't think there was a problem with January 6th, but because if we're going to have hearings about political violence, let's have hearings about political violence, not just, you know, one's right. aimed at the other at right. the other side. And increasingly, I see rhetoric from Christians. Uh, you, know, you know, I'll see things, you know, from, you know, well-known conservative influencers who say they're Christians you know, with with commentary about well, when do we get to use the guns? Um, you know, and yeah, you know, some and some of the rhetoric around vaccines. It's like, okay, you don't think there should be vaccine mandates? Good, you do well. But I'm seeing Christians and kind of in, not so far from our ecosystem talking about you know, um, you know, like Braveheart language and using lethal violence against vaccine mandates as opposed to refusing, simply refusing. Um, and the the left the, the resi- by left by calling itself the resistance under Trump was in, in essence re- the resistance is a reference to counter revolutionaries under fascist you know um, Germany right. in France. So the language of several years ago was violent, and then there was violence. So you, I think, in some ways wisely, s- slow to speak, you avoid you know, pointing at specific, um, the specific situation now, partly because in a year it'll be a different situation. Exactly. Right. But podcasts are a little more here and now. So how do you feel about kind of uh, applying this a little bit to what you're seeing? First of all, are you seeing rising violent language in our culture, including among Christians, Christians, not just the, not just the Antifa and the abortion people, and two, does that lead to violence? And how do you? How should we deal with that? Yeah, it might lead to violence. I remember back, was it in the 90s? I think it was 90s or maybe late 80s when the rhetoric from Christians about abortion was ratcheted up. And then we had a couple incidents of guys going into abortion clinic. One, if I remember in Florida, I can't remember his name, who actually Is that shot. Paul Hill? Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Yeah. So that the rhetoric preceded the action. Um, I think the action was enough to make most Christians go, whoa, 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 hold on. That's we didn't mean that we didn't want that. But ratcheting up rhetoric is always dangerous. Of course, at the center of this book, chiastically and also thematically, is the tongue. And it's the tongue of these brothers who are inciting people to violence. 
Um, and I think we all we always need to be careful about our language. Um, yeah. So, so does it? It seems to me almost like in America, especially with all the the protests and the and the riots and the mass kind of demonstrations, that we've almost it's almost like pre-Christian kind of stuff. Is, is Does a Christian nation do this? This seems almost demonic to me. Mm-hmm. Is because when you get into a mob, and I've only been in a few mobs before, but I recognize something really dangerous was happening, is this kind of mob mentality. Uh, and you're, you're enabled because of your anonymity and other things to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do and say things you wouldn't say if you were by yourself, it seems to me that this is um, a real danger for Christians. And maybe social media also is a way to inculcate this uh, because again, it's almost like a mob thing. You're, you you can do things on social media that you would never do face to face. You can say things. Twitter is frictionless mob with no consequences. Cause if you're out there in a mob, Right. Um, And I was in a violent mob once in my life. Um, You know, you've got skin in the game. It's one thing to talk tough. It's another thing to be there. Right. Um, And I left some skin behind. Um, So, you know, in social media, you don't have so much skin in the game. uh, So you can talk that way. But there are young men out there who, you know, they're not tired like you are, or they're not, you know, cautious like you are or whatever. They're, they're full of testosterone and they read your words and then they go do the thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, because often there's no father as a restraining influence. Um, and we older Christians, I think we have to be really careful, not just how we talk, but even how we talk about how we talk. To, mm-hmm. to, to say, you know, to our fellows, whoa, hold on a second. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right about the tyranny. That is tyrannical, whatever we're talking about. The taxes are sure. too high. Sure. Vaccine mandates, broad mandate, shutting down churches, you know, on the uh, slimmest epidemiological grounds, etc. Yes, these are tyrannical actions. But w- wait, when did we st- – what, what, what do guns have to do with it? Right? right. That's not our answer. Right. Um, and I think partly it gets caught up with sort of a 1776 conversation. So we talk a little bit more like Declaration of Independence and a little bit less like the Book of James, um, forgetting that those were actions of ordained civil government. What happened in 1776, those were governors. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right. right. We were a separate nation and people were obeying governing authorities. That's different than shooting up a abortion clinic or shooting up or whatever. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the time may come when cities or states interpose themselves between the federal government and individual. And that's, that's another thing entirely that may happen. Right. Um, but that's one of the problems, of course, with modern liberalism. And I mean, liberalism in the broadest sense that, you know, since the 18th century kind of enlightenment liberalism, that's, that elevates the individual is all the mediating institutions are being effaced, the family, the church, voluntary organizations, even cities and states. Now it's just the federal government and the individual. And so that what that means often is individuals kind of bound, are, bind themselves together on social media with all this elevated rhetoric 
which is just going to get them in trouble. It's not going to, it's not going to have any pot. Again, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God does not produce the righteous kingdom of God. Um, That's, that's, and, and even, even if it ever ever comes to like a 1776 situation, it's not the anger of man, which is going to rectify things. We might have to be defensive and defend our families or defend our cities or something, but uh, angry, violent, aggressive kind of behavior in order to enact the, the righteousness of God. No, that's that's what James is all about. The best thing that can come out of that, in terms of if if the, if it worked, we would simply become the new tyrants, mm-hmm. right? We would just yeah. they don't yeah. instead of them killing us, we kill them. Yeah. So people still kill their way to the top, right? In that situation, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. We we mentioned this before. I think about Rome and and Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, in the in the mimetic kind of rivalry and violence is going on. Mm-hmm. Well, if the church, this first fruits church, is just going to be like Jerusalem and Rome, then you're back to where we were uh, when you right, and right. when you get into power. And power is not wrong, and someone's got to be in power. Someone has to have authority. It all depends on how you use that power, and if you use it, um, you know, violently, and you use it for self and aggrandizing kinds of reasons, just like the Jews, just like Rome, how has anything changed? Hmm. My pastor has a saying of the most powerful form of protest is survival. Um, and a lot of James is, is that. You just survive, live with it, learn from it. And I think with the, a part of the story of the, of, of the story of Jacob, James, um, is that there's only one way to win a wrestling match with God which is to lose the wrestling match with God and still acknowledge that he's God. And it, yes, it's right that my hip is dislocated, right? And then God can say, okay, you win, right? We wrestled, you won because that's, whether you knew it or not, that was the goal I set for you in our wrestling match, uh, was to acknowledge who I am. Um, so you're, uh, So God can say, you're the winner, you beat me. You have wisdom now. Um, I, yep. I, I, I know that's a little edgy, but... Um, no, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so anything else you want to say to us about your commentary on James' wisdom for dissident before we let you go, Pastor Jeff Myers? Read it. <laughs> um, I, I recognize good, good it. advice. I recognize someone who hears this, um, and, you know, just our conversation... It might at first think, oh, that's kind of a out there interpretation of James. I don't think I've heard that before. Um, and I've had a number of friends even say, well, I heard you lecture on James once, and I didn't quite agree with it. Um, in fact, I had two people say that to me, one just this last week. And then I read through the book, and I'm like, oh, I see what you're saying. It's like, so I guess I wasn't very effective in my lectures but maybe a little more so in the book. Just keep an open mind, read through it, and see if it doesn't really make sense of the book. Hmm. And I think I think it does. And so it has a, a great deal of rev- uh, relevance to our modern age, as you, we began talking about earlier. Isn't it fascinating that by putting James in the context of 40 AD or 38, 40, 40, 42, Whatever, yeah. before 42, um, putting, putting James in the context 
of 40 AD makes him so much more relevant to 2022 AD. It does, yeah. I think it definitely does. And even, even for example, chapter 2, where he talks about justification by works, once you understand that he's not um, saying something in opposition to Paul and his polemic against the works of the law, uh, James is talking about something different. Uh, and the examples he uses, even of Abraham, who's going to sacrifice his son, and of Rahab, who has to send the spies out the other way, she has to be deceptive, both kind of fit with what's going on. There's lots of parents who lost kids, had to sacrifice kids uh, at this time, and they're also having to engage in all sorts of uh, deceptive practices in order to avoid getting caught uh, or avoid others, you know, helping others not to get caught. Uh, and the, and have... the early church has an influx of prostitutes. You know, tax yes. collectors and prostitutes are coming into the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, right? good. And, good, and, good. And, and that's how that's how Jericho falls. Um, but, but it's yeah, it's, it's things like that that once you once you place it right, I think historically, then you start seeing not only how it worked, how it was meant to work for them, what it was meant to say to them, but also for us um, in ways that don't quite work when you just see this as some general epistle thrown out into the wind about all these disconnected, wise aphorisms. And you make a, you make a point in the book you quote from Tom Wright, who basically says, if we stop trying to force the New Testament epistles to answer our 17th century and 16th century debates as the only thing they're about, right. then we can let them speak for themselves. Yeah. So if we try to read Luther versus Rome— back into James, like for most evangelical, let's say most Protestant, actually most Christians, you mentioned James, and it's like, yeah, uh-oh, James, but he's not really contradicting Paul. And then say the Roman Catholics will say, well, he's not contradicting Paul, but he is contradicting Luther. And the mimetic rivalry of that fight eats, takes up all the oxygen yeah. in the room, yeah. and we don't ever actually get to hear what James is saying. Yeah. Even in James 1.19, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Everybody reads that as if it's talking about justification by faith. Oh, okay. But, but who, do you think that these people actually thought that their anger would justify them before God, that that was what's going on there? Hmm. Uh, no, it, once, once you get rid of that justification by faith kind of screen, then you're able to see well, no, this is about the righteous kingdom that Jesus promised would come, his kingdom. And their anger is not going to be the way it's implemented in the world. Just basic things like that. Hmm. Well, the book is incredibly rich. Um, and I've read it, I've read the whole thing through once and several chapters um, quite a few times. And uh, still more is coming out. And I think. Once you get this contextually right, this book is really going to come alive for a lot of people. And, you know, let me let, let me leave off on something, you know, maybe back to Ecclesiastes. If you believe, as I do, that Ecclesiastes is essentially a meditation on the building of the temple um, by Solomon, and I think you do, right? Um, you know, yes, it's a temple, but we're still just a mist. Well, James is talking about a temple that's going to fall again. So the temple elite are sending out thugs to catch Christians. But do you not know that you're a Hebel? Do you not know that you're an Otmus? You know, um, yeah. the, the temp, that this is going to pass away. 
everything but the kingdom of God is going to pass away. I like that. Good. We need that now. All right. Pastor Jeff Myers, author of Wisdom for Dissonance. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for writing the commentary. Uh, Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your kind words. I appreciate it. I'm Jerry Boyer, and this is Meeting of Minds Podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. (laughs) 